This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks all for being here. I'm excited to um, have this opportunity and thank Anna, Medicine of Cycling. It's all about the bike, right? Some have said it's all about the bike, but some have also said, you know, it's not about the bike. <laughs> Had to do it, you know. But I tell you, it's it's not about these either. <laughs> so if it's not about those two things, what in the world is it about? You know, the clients I see want healthy, efficient, and powerful cycling. Whether it be a client of mine who's just getting back from nasty neuromuscular problems, complex regional pain syndrome, and now having less pain in her legs, she's able to run and ride. Or doing his fifth AIDS ride, Steve is now at an age of 77 years old and just continues to ride on and on and on. San Francisco to Los Angeles at 77. Or a client, Chris Lieto, who just continues to be first off the bike. So it's about healthy, powerful, efficient cycling. But how in the world do we get there? You just have to understand that the body is the engine of this bike. It's not something you can step on the gas pedal and go. You have to have some health and some efficiency setting inside, and we're going to talk a lot about that tonight. And then, of course, we're here to talk about a bike that fits you, not a bike that fits that racer down the street or Chris or Garmin. It's a bike that fits you and all of your health and or your inefficiencies. And if you put a pinch and a pinch together, it really does add up to a pound, add up to a pound of healthy, happy cycling, powerful cycling. They multiply one another. So first thing you need to understand is that something you've probably heard a long time ago. I'm going to push the volume down a little bit. Because most people think it's um, the body is pieces and parts. And it's a whole lot more about this song than it is pieces of the body. It's really critical. We're going to talk a lot about that in the next couple. Because the head bone's connected to the neck and the head bone's connected to the feet. It means that we, if you do it, the most recent dissections, like of the hamstrings, we understand the hamstrings, of course, start you know, down below the knee and then come up to the ischial tuberosity here at the butt. But if you do a dissection and you're conscious about the fascia, that interweaving of um, tissue around, you'll start to see these layers that continue up into the erector spinae, up into the back of the neck, and all the way down into the foot. I can't tell you the number of clients that I work with that as they start to recognize this connection all the way up the chain, this is a single dissection of muscle, um, that we start to work on their foot or their calf and all of a sudden their hamstring flexibility gets better, maybe their mid-back or maybe even their head. And these chains are not only vertical up and down the body, but some of them cross over the body. So it is indeed connected. These fascial interweaves that run through and around muscles put us all in one piece. There's a term out there that was coined by Buckminster Fuller, oh, back in 62, called tensional integrity, also known as tensegrity. It basically means a connection of um, 
pieces and parts through tensional integrity as opposed to through compression. So as we start to weave together the body through long chains, we end up with pieces of bones that aren't compressing on one another, but these fascial lines that have the ability to decompress the joint, decompress the knee, the hip, the low back. And you find this a lot with people with arthritis. Once they start to get strength around their hamstrings, their quads, down in their leg, all of a sudden the arthritis is still there, but the pain is less. They've got less compression inside the joint. So the wheel is a great example of tensional integrity in that you've got spokes pulling on the rim and the rim pulling on those spokes. And if you've got the spokes nicely tensioned around the rim and you hit a pothole, it distributes the forces around the entire system. If we hit a pothole in our body, our muscles distribute the forces around the entire system. What happens if you've got one spoke that's a little bit too tight or a couple spokes that are a little too loose, some muscles that are weak and some muscles that are tight, and we hit a pothole, we've got a problem. So what that looks like on the bike is maybe we've got a foot that's not working well or a hip that's not working well or maybe even a mid-back that's not working well and we start to get a knee that's wagging and this is the guy that you're behind or the gal that you're behind and you see that knee kind of doing this and you maybe see the butt that's doing this and that might be coming from the foot, that might be coming from the knee. You just don't know until you start to look and understand these interconnected systems. So we ask the question of, you know, what's driving your knee? It could be your foot, it could be your pelvis, it could be your thoracic spine. And we've got this poor little knee that walks in to see me and says, I'm in pain. And most people will go, well, if you're in pain, then let me do some ultrasound here. Let me do some ice packs on the knee. Well, let me massage the knee. And so many times the knee is the victim. It's the victim of something above or below, sometimes pretty far away. It'd be kind of like if I grabbed someone's hair and pulled on it. And I said, you know, what hurts? And they go, my head hurts. And I start to treat their head. The problem is me. The problem is something that's yanking on the knee. Now, I'm not saying that there's not always knee problems, because there are. But we have to understand who's the criminal and who's the victim. The criminal can many times be further up and down the chain. And we start out, second thing you need to know first is you've got this chain of interconnectedness. Second thing you need to know is what I think about as a wellness account or a body health account. So we start out with a knee that's pretty darn happy and our potential wellness when we're 16 years old is way up here at the top. And we sit at the computer and we type and we ride our bike and we have an accident and we start to you know, bounce on the ground a couple of times and our bank account gradually over time starts to go down. But nothing hurts yet. You know, we're still on the bike. We're happy. We're still sitting at the computer. We're happy. We're bending over and picking up things. We're happy. Then one day we go out for that ride that's, you know, not a little bit longer, but a lot longer and not a little bit hillier, but a lot hillier. And we write a $10 check. And now all of a sudden our bank account balance has gone into the red. And now all of a sudden you go, my knee hurts. And all I did was bend over to pick up a pencil. Or my back hurts. And all I did is pick up my kid. Well, it wasn't that $5 withdrawal. It's what's been happening, all the crashes, the accidents, the sitting at the computer. And now eventually you've taken that last little bit out of the account and something starts to hurt. The question is what happens after that? Most people will walk into rehab and they'll work with me a little bit or you know, they'll do some yoga or some flexibility or maybe they'll start eating a little bit better and they start to add a little bit of money to their accounts. But then they drift right along this line, just waiting for that next withdrawal to push them back in the hole. 
Uh, remember up here is our potential wellness and our resilience. I would argue that that 76-year-old that I talked about earlier is functioning way up in here. You know, so age does this, but most of the time what we do to our body does that. So start to think about how we can add health and resilience and wellness back into our body. Flexibility, strength, etc. So the body's connected and we work in a health account balance. What's next for you? Next. So we need to understand your flexibility a little bit. Because remember, this is a marriage of the bike to your body. So the needs of the Olympic level cyclist who needs to be in a very aerodynamic fast position are very different than my needs, most of our needs. And so you don't need this flexibility in order to ride a bike that's oops, mostly upright. But this is the kind of flexibility you need in order to be in a very aerodynamic time trial. So most of us walk around with hip flexibility somewhere around here. It gets very tight. In order to ride a bike in a slightly bent over position, we need hip flexibility here. And I'm still not getting any resistance here. I'm looking for how hard it is for me to move her leg and does her back start to move. But in order to ride in an aerodynamic position, I can't tell you how many people walk into my office saying, you know, I really want to be down here. And it's been 10 years since I've ridden a bike and I'm a stiff old bloke. (laughs) And I just don't understand why my hips are rocking and my back hurts. Because in order to get down there, you need this. And in order to get down there, most of the guys I walk into the back have here. You need this. You need these kind of flexibilities. Flip over to your stomach for me. In order to stay injury-free, in order to stay healthy. Quads that don't look like this, but quads that look like that. Yeah. (laughs) I can't do that. You notice I'm not laying on this table. (laughs) But I'm also not an elite athlete, and I'm not the Garmin people I work with. But I'll tell you, there's a number of elite-level athletes that walk in, and they hurt, and they don't look like this. And as soon as their flexibility and their strength starts to come up, they stop hurting, and they get faster. So flexibility. We also need to know a little bit about your core control, your stability in your abdomen. But why in the world do we need core stability for cycling? You know, it's not like we're batting a ball or throwing. Yeah, my favorite analogy is to think about these legs that are pushing down on the pedals kind of like a cannon. So if that cannon pushes down on the pedal and it's setting on something nice and stable and strong, then it looks like this. When you fire the cannon on a battleship, you have a lot of power that's driven to the pedal. When you fire a cannon on a canoe, you got a problem. And a lot of people see hips that are rocking and say, well, the saddle must be too high. I see hips that are rocking and many times that person just doesn't have the core control and stability and their legs are these massively strong things and their core is just like just snoring away doesn't know how to connect so what we do in the chair all day long at work affects how we get on this bike one of my favorite expressions is the body is cement waiting to harden Yeah. The flip side of that coin is motion is lotion. So if you add a little water into that cement, if you get into yoga, if you sit up in your chair and wiggle about a little bit every once in a while, then all of a sudden you're starting to break up some of that cement. So, and this counts even in professional elite level cyclists. I don't know whether you can see it in the way he's sitting here. 
the Christian's got all the, his weight on this right hip. Uh, we're now at probably seven or eight years ago. He fell on this left femur and fractured. I think it was seven or eight pieces. Whoa. Yeah. And so he sat around all day long looking like this. And then he expected to be able to shift his weight over to his left sit bone. I'll bet you probably a quarter of you in here aren't equal on your sit bones right now. And you're not equal at work. If I asked you to shift from side to side, you wouldn't be able to get from side to side efficiently. As Christian had a challenge here. So as I, um, as I asked him to shift over, and you can even see how his shoulders have a little bit of a, a fall here. As I asked him to shift over to the right side, it was quite easy. And as I asked him to shift over to the left side, he really had a hard time initially getting that elongation on there. Um, he would go about a quarter of the way over and just like quite literally fall onto that side. He looked like this, and he looked like this, and he looked like this, and he looked like that. And that's the way he pedaled on the bike. You could see him rocking up the hill, and you could see his pelvis twisting at almost 30 degrees on the saddle. He said, thanks for giving me my left leg back. And this exercise was a big piece of that for him. So now you understand a bit about the body. Now let's understand a little bit about the fit. So the professional fit has a lot of pieces to it. If you're just walking into a shop and they stand over the top tube and lift up the bike and said, ah, you got two inches, you're fine. You know, the nice thing is that's not the normal anymore. Uh, when I started this almost 20 years ago and fitting, that was the normal. You know, fitting was something weird that Greg Lamine talked about in an inseam length. So these days, there's a lot of shops and a lot more people out here that are doing nice fits. But it's not a five-minute, ten-minute, or even a one-hour process if you're going through some of the depths of it. First, we have to go through an interview. You know, what are some of your goals? We'll talk a little bit more about that. We'll talk about the on-bike evaluation. What are some of the things I'm looking at from the pelvis? The off-bike evaluation. We talked a little bit about that earlier. We then finally, after going through that process, we then start to look at changing the bike. I need to understand your body, your goals, etc. before we ever start to play around with the bike. And then we might go through some exercise instruction, depending upon you know, what the skill level is or what the clinician comes into it with. I frequently will throw a little bit of treatment in that first if someone walks in with some discomfort. And then finally... We look at some cycling biomechanics. You know, some people, their knees wag because there's something stiff and tight. Some people, their knees wag because they've never been taught to pedal a bike straight. So sometimes there's some instruction in actually how to ride, how to ride with a good posture, how to breathe correctly. Yeah, it makes a big difference. So I like to start to think about this as a less of a professional fit and a lot more about a cycling biomechanical analysis. There's a big difference there for me, which a fit is something that, hey, walk into a shop, maybe get things pretty well done, you know, but really going through a specific flexibility, strength evaluation, understanding your biomechanical needs and making the bike fit your body. In some ways, believe it or not, actually, the truth is in most ways, believe it or not, it's a whole lot easier to fit the people you've seen on the screen so far than most of us because they've had a lot of flexibility. They've had a lot of core. Their job is to ride a bike or to race in a track. And they don't sleep five or six hours a night. They sleep 10 hours a night. And their time not on the bike is working on flexibility and strength. The professional athletes many times are much easier. So going through a cycling biomechanical analysis where you're really looking at the whole as opposed to just the bike makes a lot more sense to me. So looking at that process, first the interview. What are your goals? If you get anything out of tonight, 
what I really want you to hear is uh, bike fit is about getting the bike to you and not to some standard, you know, your knee angle needs to be this or your hip angle should be that or I read in a book that your torso angle should be that. It's about understanding what are your goals. Hey, I just want to ride to the supermarket. Great. I don't want to put you here. You know, hey, you know, I want to be very aerodynamic, very fast cyclist and I've got the flexibility and strength to do it. Great. Let's get you low. So what are your goals walking in? And if a fitter doesn't really take some time in asking you um, what's going on with you and where you're trying to get to, then think otherwise. What's your histories of injury and trauma? Any surgeries that you had? I got to know your history to understand what I need to do to this bike to make it fit you. What do you do for work? Yeah, it looks that way. You know, I can tell you the number of people that are there and what happens on the. Yeah, makes a difference. And then there's a lot of other things to ask. You know, for me, you know, I'm talking to someone 20 minutes during my bike fit process, usually why they're sitting there and warming up. But I want to know all about you and the things that make a difference for fit. Next, first the interview, next the biomechanical analysis. So when you're pedaling on a bike, we don't want those knees to be going. When the knee starts to track to the outside like that, there's really nice. If there's, any, if there's one thing that's been researched nicely on the bike relative to biomechanics, it's this. And when the knee starts a-rocking, there's some challenges. Because the knee was supposed to be straight, relatively speaking. Now, side to side, maybe a centimeter and a half to three and a half centimeters, basically an inch or so. But when it starts to go like this, and this person came into me with some knee discomfort, it happened to be his pelvis that was driving this. Um, we got the bike in a better place, and his knee stopped. Uh, his knee pain stopped. He also had some IT band tightness that was dragging his knee around. What the knee should look like is that... Now, what this is, is it's a retool, which is a motion capture system you'll see a picture of in a minute. When that knee is tracking straight up and down, we put these little dots on the person, it looks much more like this as opposed to like that. And this retool system spits out a nice um, measure of this. You know, this is about 25 or so millimeters of travel from side to side. With the frame being here, that's a knee going sagittal, if you will. Next, what's going on with the knee and what's going on with the pelvis? So we talked earlier about the butt shouldn't be rocking much on the bike. I've got this person just pedaling backward initially to see what it should be doing. It does the same thing going forward as well. But watch what happens as they shift over to that side. See how much they hike up? And then as they continue to pedal backward, and you'll see the forward here in a minute, they got a nice pop on that left side that they didn't have on the right. And you can see his pelvis tipping over there as well. And in a moment, he'll start a forward right there. And every time they came over that pedal stroke, that pelvis twisted, happened to get some saddle sores on the right side, happened to get some right knee pain. And in this case, it was that left pelvis that was driving the right knee pain. So the pelvis should look a whole lot more like this from the back, a little bit of side to side, just like when we're walking, as opposed to that big rocking or any significant amount of twisting on the bike. It should be pointed straight ahead because the more we're doing this or the more we're doing this, it might look great for dancing. Well, maybe not on me, but the more it's pointed straight ahead, the happier we're going to be on the bike. Okay. So... On-bike evaluation continues by looking at the uh, pedals first because the pedals aren't going to go anywhere. We need to make sure they're in a nice place. So when you clip into the pedal, 
you have this cleat and the cleat can be adjusted forward and backward and the forward and backward should be set up so the the back of this first met head here this one's a little bit forward this client didn't do very well in therapy (laughs) you'll see him a little later on Um, so that the back of this first med head or the front of the fifth med head should be over the pedal axle. Many people will have the cleat setting too far forward and what will that lead to? Now I get to ask you a question. If you have a cleat that's too far forward, what might that cause? Knee pain. Knee pain, very important. I heard another one that was really frequent. Achilles, yeah. The more forward that cleat is, the longer the lever arm on the calf and into the Achilles tendon. There's one more I see a whole lot, probably the most common. Hot spots, numbness, yeah. When the cleat's too far forward, instead of over the back part of this met head, then frequently people get heel pain, Achilles, calf problems, knee pain, and the biggest is hot spots. Small changes make really big differences here. And so moving the cleat not by an inch forward and backward, but by two or three millimeters, or sometimes even a mill or two. Now a mill is about the thickness of your fingernail. Tiny little changes make big differences in fit. We'll talk about why in a minute here. So side to side, you can obviously adjust this cleat forward and backward, but it'll also slide side to side. The side to side should be set up here so that the center of the ankle continuing up to the center of the knee and the center of the hip are all in that same plane of motion. Now there's some exceptions to that, but generally we want to see a nice straight line down through the center of that foot. And then rotation. I want everyone for a moment just to put their feet flat on the ground for a second. And I want you to notice your feet relative to one another. Do both of your feet point straight ahead? To ask that question. Or is one different than the other? Most of us it is. Is one pointed out more than the other? How many people have one foot that's pointed out more than the other? Yeah. How many people just have a foot that's pointed out or feet that are pointed out? Yeah, most of it. Probably three quarters is a pretty normal amount. I see a lot of people that walk into the office that have their cleats, which give you a little bit of movement, pointed straight ahead. And the amount of movement that they have allows them to go from here to here, or maybe here to here. But they walk into the office and their foot's like this. You know, they're sitting there with one foot turned out, and the cleat is saying, you must be straight ahead. So if the cleat tells you, watch my knee for a second, I shouldn't get in front of that. If the cleat, if your foot wants to be turned out and your cleat says you must be straight ahead, then all of a sudden you see my knee go in. So if I don't take the cleat rotation and accommodate the rotation for what's going on in your knee, your calf, your foot, maybe even your entire leg, all of a sudden I'm screwing you up from the bottom up. So that knee that we saw going in and out earlier that was driven from a pelvis, it could have just been as easily driven from a cleat that was on incorrectly. I continue to come back to you. Got to accommodate the bike, the cleats to you, wherever you're at today. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't change and you hopefully will get more flexible, more strength. But if I don't make the bike meet your body today, then all of a sudden we've got a bike that's screwing you up, literally and or figuratively. So that's the cleats. Yeah, kind of a fun picture. For those of you who don't know some basics on the the bike, down here is the bottom bracket. We'll be talking about that in a second. Here is the seat tube. We'll be talking about that in a second. The top tube, the stem, obviously the handlebar, and the brake hood. 
And, um, oh, you can find this online here. It's a really fun pick. So next thing we need to understand is, um, is the seat height and the seat foreaft. What helps to determine your seat height and your seat foreaft? So we've got the cleat first. We started at the bottom. Next, we start here. How do you make a change or how do you determine how high this saddle should be and how far forward and backward it should be? Leg length. So that's a great place to start. So you and I walk into the office and we both have the same leg length. My flexibility is like mine and your flexibility is like that. So our saddle, should our saddle heights be the same? Yeah, it's a good, good thing to think about it. No, not at all. So there's a range of seat heights for any given leg length. And the more flexible you are, the more you can have a seat height that's higher in that range, more open or more extended. Let me slide that on for me. I'm going to show what that looks like in a moment. But there's some nice research out there that as you get the saddle higher, more open in that knee angle, there's some nice efficiency benefits to be had. There's some nice power benefits to be had. With that being said, you can't go outside of your flexibility limits, and you certainly can't go outside of those ranges. So flexibility is a huge determiner of where your seat height is. Other determiners, I heard some other ones. Your height. So I'm going to say height is a lot, of, a lot like your um, leg length. So your leg length will determine to some extent. What else? Ratio of femur to tibia. Ratio of femur to tibia. Uh, yes, that'll give me a great place to start. As I get a little bit higher, I tend to a little longer femur. I'll tend to go a little bit further back. Absolutely. That drives fore aft a little bit more than it drives height. But I'll throw that out there. What else? Shoe size is a little bit more about where your foot is on the pedal as opposed to your height. There's a, there's a big one here that I haven't heard yet. Torso length? Not so much. Length? Ah, okay, I'm going to give it. Color of, color of the bike. That's the best <laughs> answer I've heard. <laughs> so as you should stay here, um, as your seat height gets lower, your knee bends more. As your seat height gets higher, your knee straightens more. Do you think that affects what happens to the front and the back of your knees? As your knees bend more, I take some stress off of the hamstrings, but I put some more stress, and I say hamstrings, the back chain of the body, the, the chain you saw earlier, but I put some more stress on the front chain of the body because the quads have to work a little more here. The knees bend a little bit more coming over the top the lower the saddle is. So if someone walks into me and says, I've got this blaring IT band pain, and I've got really tight hamstrings and maybe some calf or even some low back pain, I'm not going to push them all all the way to the top of the length of that chain. I'm going to think about lowering that saddle a little bit, again, within the ranges, but I'm going to think about lowering that saddle to take some tension off of that chain. Now, someone walks in and says, I've got great hamstring flexibility. My back, back chain is working well, but I've had this patellofemoral problem for the last you know, two years, and every time I slide forward on the saddle or go up a steep hill, you know, I've got some front-of-the-knee pain. If their flexibility will allow it, I'm going to have a little bit higher saddle. So to think about this as just the biometrics, how long is your femur, your tibia, your torso, it gives us some, you know, Greg LeMond 20 years ago said 0.866 times your inseam gives you your, your saddle height. I say that's a nice place to start, but let me, let me understand you. And what are your goals again? What's your flexibility? What are your needs relative to taking some stress off these structures? Okay, Kelly, will you hop up for me? 
So what does the measuring seat height actually look like? So we're going to do seat height and we're going to do seat fore aft. There we go. And I'll see if I can get in everybody's way here. So I'm going to try to be as far behind her as I can. Can people see there? So when you get to the bottom of the pedal stroke, and I'm going to call the bottom of the pedal stroke, uh, yeah, I won't be here long, I promise, where the crank arm, and I didn't show you that on the visual, is in line with the seat tube. It's the greatest point of extension of her knee. When you get to the bottom of the pedal stroke and the foot is in a pedaling position, not heel down, not heel way up, I can measure the angle of the knee. And in measuring the angle of the knee, I can put this fancy little goniometer on it, and measure from, there's a bone down here, I won't bore you with the name of it, the center of the knee axis, and then there's a bone up here, the top of the femur, um, and look at that knee angle. That knee angle, when you're measuring it statically like this, should be somewhere between 25 and 35 degrees. The higher you go, the more that knee straightens out. The lower you go, the more the knee bends. The lower the saddle is, the more you put stress on the front of the knee. The higher you go, more the back of the knee and the more flexibility you have or need in your hamstrings IT. So that's seat height, and this is one way of measuring it. I'll talk about another one in a moment. Now, seat fore aft. Bring your foot to the front. So... Uh, Again, these are all recommendations and generals. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that I actively stepped outside of these recommendations because the person in front of me needed that. The second thing I've got to say about this is it's also, um, I'm talking about road bikes right now. If you throw in time trial fitting, if you throw in um, aero fitting where you're down like this, a lot of these things shift by 5, 10, even 20 degrees, and there's other things I need to take into account. So most of us are probably in here riding either upright bikes or recreation or maybe even a, a speed position, um, but this is road bike. Mountain bikes are a little bit more upright, but you'll see some of the same angles. So just know I'm talking about road so fore aft so the fore aft is looking at the knee and particularly right at the bottom of the kneecap relative to that center of the pedal axle same thing you saw me talk about earlier um, the center of the pedal spindle so as I drop a plumb line off of the front of the knee I want to see the bottom of that kneecap hey whoever did this did a good job <laughs> that's quite nice um, I want to see the bottom of that kneecap drop right through the center of the pedal axle. Now, if the knee is more forward, what do you think I add stress to? What do you think I might take stress away? As I move the knee forward, do I put more stress on the front or the back of the knee? Front, yeah. As I take you back a little bit further... More stress on the back. So I can start to play with this. And again, general recommendations, knee over pedal spindle. That's, and as the saddle goes forward, the knee goes forward. As the saddle goes back, the knee goes back. So here we're talking about saddle fore aft, driving the knee position relative to where you're pushing on the pedal. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 good. So saddle fore aft. Now I gotta find my clicky thing. That's the technical term, right? The clicky thing. So, um, 
So that's one way of measuring it. Plumb lines, goniometers. I still use them a lot is the truth. Uh, but sitting in my office, I've also got some video capture software and a fun little tool called Retool. There's three video cameras or motion or sensors in here that look at these dots setting on Christian. And these dots are LEDs and they actively send out light that this picks up. So then what you get is a really fun little measurement of, hey, what's that knee angle look like? You know, what's the ankle angle? How much is the knee moving side to side? You saw that visual earlier. You know, 19 millimeters of side to side motion. That's a knee that's going straight up and down. Retool is a fun little 15K toy that gives me a lot of data about the person on the bike. Again, our average fit, no way. And the truth is half the time, I'm, I shouldn't say this probably in front of a national audience, um, but half the time I don't start there. I'm looking at static stuff. And then I pull out my retool and get further into the depths as I need to. So seat height, you can see measuring it there, and seat fore aft, knee forward a foot measuring it there. Now sometimes no matter what you do, you can't get the person in the position that um, you'd like them in. And some people just have to ride these bikes to win the donut races. <laughs> yeah, that was it, um, Levi's Grand Fondo. And every time they went around, they had to eat a donut. Yeah, Kristen Armstrong, yeah, yeah, I think won that race, beat Tom Danielson in that race. Um, On the bike, what's the best seat out there? (laughs) I love it, that's that's the best answer. And that is the best answer. I'm even take one step further, one that feels good, as opposed to one that doesn't hurt. And believe it or not, there is that magic over the rainbow. One that doesn't hurt, one that feels good. But one that feels good, and this is work that's been done by um, Trek and Bontrager. Um, They throw a little pressure map. I've got this little pressure map thing that you can pop on the top of the saddle. And when you do a pressure mapping, you should see a lot more of the pressure... Okay, you should see a lot more of the pressure here on the bony parts of the pelvis as opposed to up here in the perineum. And setting up the angle, what should the angle of the saddle be about? Yeah, about flat, especially right here where you're contacting it with. So if you've got the right saddle, and we're going to go there in a minute, and the saddle is about horizontal, depending on your needs, then you start to look at pressures that look like this. We need to make sure that the, pr- the saddle is right for you, meaning do you need a cutout or don't you? I tell you, there's probably 25% of my clients that walk in the door that hate cutouts. And I don't care that they hate them, let's just get out of the cutout. What's the right width of saddle for you? Do you have very wide sit bones or do you have very narrow sit bones? This is that same patient from before that didn't do very well. And you can see that they're sitting on what's classically known out there as the assometer. And this little thing dents. And so that when you stand up, there's a dent that's left here. And I can actually measure the distance between your sit bones. And believe it or not, just because you have a narrow pelvis up here at your iliac crest, it's not correlated at all with how wide your sit bones are. Um, yeah, I know. It's amazing. Um, I just had a nice conversation with Megan Gertner, um, our national champion. Hopefully I pronounced her last name right. Um, and she was, uh, she has one of the narrowest pelvises I've ever seen. And she's on a saddle that looks like a couch. It's so wide. <laughs> and when she's not on a base of support that's wide enough for her, her pelvis looked like she was a rookie. I mean, it was all over the place. I wish I'd brought that video. So what about shape? Shapes come in a lot of different shapes and, of course, sizes. Saddles should be about horizontal. 
And the more tipped forward your pelvis gets, if the saddle is not right for you, then it starts to look a lot more like this. You get these pressure hot spots, and as you tip even more forward, it gets really hot in the perineum. As opposed to as you tip more forward, keeping the pressure on the rami or the outside of the pelvis. Again, sometimes that means you need a cutout. Sometimes that means you need a, a saddle that has a different shape, like this transition of the saddle being a little bit more wide. So when you look at saddles, you can look at three different variables outside of width and cutout. Uh, and those variables are how, uh, you can kind of see it up here as well, how sloped out is that saddle? How much does it look like an arrow versus how much does it look like an arrow glass? Everyone got that visual. How much of a scoop up does it have in the back? You can see this one's got a little bit of a scoop up in the back versus some of the Selenotomica saddles have a huge scoop up in the back. And the third thing we can look at is the curvature from side to side. You can see that this saddle is relatively flat with a little bit of a tip on either side. So that's the, if you had sliced it right down through the center. So saddles, if you play with them, you'll find that, and this again, research that's been done nicely by Bontrager Saddles and Trek, that generally as you get a little bit more tipped over, most people tend to like a saddle that has a little bit of greater curvature, a saddle that has a little bit more tip up in the back, and a saddle that has a little more curvature from side to side. Versus the saddle, the person that's sitting a little bit more upright, a saddle that's a little more like an arrow, a little flatter, and a little flatter from side to side. Can people visualize those? Again, generals, please. Um, so when you're thinking about seats, think about these things. Do you need a cutout or not? Number one. What width do you need? Number two. Number three, is the saddle about horizontal? And I say about plus or minus two or three degrees. And then what is the shape of the saddle? Think about those four things. And generally, people get in the ballpark. Um, and then honestly, there's some trial and error that goes along with this. You know, what saddle testing allows me to do in the office is to say, well, you hate 75% of the saddles that look like this. And you like 25% of the saddles that look like this. Let's try these two or three out on the road and then come back and figure out what else do you like. It is a process. And once you find the saddle that you like, tomorrow or next month, it'll go out of stock and they'll stop making it. <laughs> it's like shoes. It drives me bloody crazy. So like shoes, buy a couple of them. So when you find the saddle that you like, walk into the store and say, give me four of those. And you're set for the next 10 years probably. Because trust me, it'll go out. Or they'll say, this is the one that's upgraded. You'll like it better. And then you'll get on it and go, ah, crap. So the reach is the distance from the saddle out to the handlebars. What effects, so we've got the cleats in the right place, we've got the seat in the right place and at the right angle. We've hopefully got you on the right seat. Now the next thing we generally look at is where are the handlebars in space? How far away from them you are them? Are you? Yeah, that's good English. And what is the distance between your saddle and your bars? Basically, we call that your drop and your reach. What do you think affects how far out these are going to go? Torso length. Torso length, one. Strength. Um, the position on the bike from the back end. So torso length. So of course the orthobiometrics, meaning the longer you are in the torso, the further out those are going to be. That's easy. Strength. So if someone has a great core, 
they're probably going to be able to do this. If someone has an incredible core, they're going to be able to do this. Because what, trick question, what steers the bike most of the time? Is it your handlebars? Yeah, your hips and your pelvis and down to your feet. Um, Cycling and cornering is a lot more like skiing than it is about driving a car. It happens from your pelvis and it happens from your feet. So your hands are left to be shock absorbers. They're left to be light on the handlebars. Because most people go, I don't know why my neck hurts. (laughs) And every pothole that hits is opposed to oh, those potholes just kind of bounce out there. And I can steer the bike really well even if someone bumps me in a crit. Or if that person beside me decides to do this, the pelvis is stabilized on the bike. The hands are just left to do what they need to do. And it's amazing to watch elite-level riders with this because you'll see them riding down the road with their hands in their pockets, and they're not sitting up. But they're down here with both hands digging in their pockets on a downhill at 40 miles an hour. That's a true story. Yeah, that's an absolute true story. They go, freaking A, what happened? So because they're so good at controlling the bike from their pelvis, not from their hands, and the bike gets pushed in a crit, or a bike, you know, you're in a corner and all of a sudden the traction starts to go, and they pull it back underneath them. And I say, um, and I say pros, but there's a person in the audience that's not so a pro that's gotten very good at handling their bike uh, when things get slippery. I'm looking at her. <laughs> um, So get good at handling your bike from your pelvis. And as further you bend forward, the more strength and stability you need here. What else do you need as your handlebars go further away from you? Flexibility. That comes back to, hey, the more you bend over, the more this whole posterior chain of muscles better allow you to bend over. Because how many people do you see on the bike not like this, but like this? Then they go to work. And then they're 50. Twenty-five, yeah. Uh, the number of um, the number of elite guys I see that I say straighten up, and they go, "I am straight." What are you talking about? They they've been bent over for so long they can't get back and up anymore. So the reach is affected by core. The reach is affected by flexibility, and the reach is a lot affected by health. Meaning, if you've had a lot of low back discomfort, if you've had a lot of neck discomfort, this is a more de- demanding position because eventually you need to lift up your head to look at the road, and it puts more strain on the neck. So again, I continue to come back and pound the nail and say this is about fitting the bike to you, your flexibility, your strength, your goals, and where the reach is is a lot about what you need coming out of the bike. So that's reach. The drop is the same, and they really kind of go hand in hand. The drop, again, is that how low are the handlebars relative to the saddle? Obviously, as you get lower, you've got more aerodynamic benefits. As you get lower, you get a little more weight on the front wheel. That's why it's easier when you get in the drops to be able to corner and descend well. As you get lower, there's some really nice benefits about putting some weight on the pedals. But I tell you, there's the number of people that I need to pull up and back with their handlebars versus the people I go down and forward. And I'm not talking about your average Joe, but professionals that I need to pull up and back 
are outnumbered probably three to one. And even on the elite levels, many times I bring the handlebars up and back, and here's what happens. They go, but I'm so arrow. And I bring them up by five, four centimeters. And they go, I'm so not arrow. And they go, but I can handle the bike better. And oh, my back and my neck pain feels better too. And they go faster because I've brought them up just a tiny bit. And they've been slammed down and forward, up and back. So reach and drop really go hand in hand. And we need to get you in a position that looks a lot more... Kelly, can you hop up again for me? There we go. So a position, you're fine. Yeah, let's go up there first. A position that looks a lot more like this, where the elbows are relaxed. Her upper traps aren't saying, oh my God. She could actually wiggle her fingers here. Her lats are relaxed. And her delt is relaxed. Her low back is relatively flat. You should never be extended or arched on the bike, but flat to slightly flexed. Looking like this, as opposed to, go down to your drops and exaggerate that for me a little bit. You know, she's got enough flexibility, she could go all the way. Um, And even getting all the way in there, you can still do it with your flexibility. But when you start to get, let me move you for a second, when you start to get like that, And that happens because you start to bend over to get to the bike. I should stay in the, yeah. You start to bend over to get to the bike and all of a sudden something back here, or maybe even the saddle, um, stops you from going more forward. But the handlebars are out there, so you just have to keep going. As opposed to being able to hinge at the hip and keeping the back nice and neutral. Does that make sense? Beautiful. So neutral in the back, flexible through the hamstring, strong core. All of those things will make a difference in how far and how low. Now, obviously, the torso length makes a difference. You know, wow. saw a gentleman today who's 7'2", you know, and his bike is way out here, and his saddle is way up here. So it makes a huge difference there. Let me see if there's anything else. Stretch shade here. So think about it for a second. Let's say Kelly for a moment had a tight lat, these muscles over in here, and they started to pull on her this way. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but for a moment, think about what that might do to her saddle and the way she's sitting on the bike and what that did all the way down into her pelvis. Any one of these dysfunctions, tightnesses up and through the chain, as we were talking about earlier, bleeds all the way down. And so many times you find a mess, it's kind of like a leak, you know, you find the mess on the floor and you just keep on cleaning up that mess and cleaning up the mess and you have to keep calling the plumber. And until the plumber finds where that dysfunction is coming from, finally that leak stops and the mess goes away. So thinking about the reach and the drop as a really integral part in what's happening all the way down the rest of the chain. I think I'm good. There we go. Oh, bar width. Um, bar width is traditionally measured from center of the bar over to center of the bar. And it's obvious that if your handlebars aren't in front of your shoulders, you've got a challenge there. And I've even had sprinters that'll walk in with these 46 centimeter wide bars and they think that, you know, the wider is better. I get more leverage. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, I end up doing a lot of this, honestly. Especially at the, the pro cramps where it, you, it's hard to argue. You know, I've been doing this for 25 years. Sorry about the accent. <laughs> My wife tells me I go Indian no matter what accent I try. So when your hands are in front of your shoulders, you actually end up in a very strong, stable position. And even just a centimeter on either side of that, I'm going to try to move you, don't let me, can make a big difference in how strong you are here. And I've, I've had people on 46 centimeter bars that I can, with two fingers, and these are big, hulky guys, move their bars pretty easily. And I bring them two centimeters in on either side, and all of a sudden, they're more aerodynamic, so at least they feel better about that. <laughs> <laughs> but they're also more stable, and their necks stop hurting, and their upper back stop hurting. Because when you get the hands in front of the shoulders, and there's some details there, in the nice, strong, and stable position, there's a lot of things that get to relax there. Putting it all together, I've pounded away at that, making the bike fit your goals and your needs. So what it really is, is it's a marriage. And it's a marriage between you, which you're adaptable, you're changeable. It takes a little bit more time to change than the bike. And thankfully, this doesn't yell back at you. <laughs> and this is happy to change. But the body... If you do the stuff you need to, and you can't walk into a physical therapist's office like myself and walk out without at least one exercise or one piece of homework. But if you do the stuff that not only makes you happier on the bike, but also make you happier in life, your flexibility, your strength and stability, it doesn't take a lot of time, but it can be really critical. But in the meantime, we get the bike to meet you. So the bike takes into account your current health and fitness and your goals. And we change the bike to meet your body. Pounded away a lot at that. But it's this process over time if we're doing it right. It's not kind of a one and done. So most people walk in the office and say, you know, I want to beat my friends on a flat, you know, or up a hill. And they walk in with, you know, the usual. And they look like this. And I check their hamstring flexibility. And it's like this. <laughs> but, I, but I'm really happy to be out here. And so they walk in and their, their fit just doesn't match them. So we bring the bike up to the body, and that might mean bringing the handlebars up a little bit or bringing the saddle down to accommodate the flexibility and the strength. And we do an accommodated fit. And we defined accommodated fit in medicine of cycling is, you know, we might have two or three goals. The client walks in and says, you know, I want to be aerodynamic, but I really want to get rid of my neck and my back pain. So I say, you know, on day one, I care a whole lot more about getting rid of your neck and your back pain, so that way you can bend over and pick up your kids, as opposed to your aerodynamic goals. And this is even happen with pros post-surgery. So day one, we do an accommodated fit where one goal, their health goal, supersedes the second goal of being aerodynamic. But they still have that aerodynamic goal. So then the rider changes. We do some treatment, exercise, coaching. Maybe even it's just, you know, I've only been on the bike for six months or a year. Well, over time, your body's going to change. So we go through some changing of the body, and then we come back and we refit the rider. So those two goals are no longer pushing against one another, but they're now in tandem with one another. Oh, you can get more aerodynamic, and you can be light on your hands without getting numbness. You can be more aerodynamic and keep a nice, healthy low back and cervical spine. But this is a process that can happen over not days, weeks, but months, and sometimes even years. Because we've been sitting like this at our computers, and the cement's been hardening for quite some time now. 
So think about taking care of your body and working on making the changes in the middle so we can continue the process of getting you healthier. Less accommodations. Because most people walk into the office really looking to get rid of some pain or looking to get faster tomorrow. They walk into the office for an experience that looks like this. (laughs) And it's a whole lot more like this. And you're doing the straightening yourself. Sometimes I'm working on you, but the most important thing I do with people is really give them homework. Things that make them feel better on and off the bike. Whether it be posture or ergonomics. Really working back and forth between these two. So, uh, I brought a, a, I can call her a close friend here, but I've, I've been, had the pleasure and been very proud for the last couple of years to work with Kelly. For so many reasons, um, mostly just because you're a wonderful person. Um, but she's shown so much determination over the years. And probably most recently, it was this story, which was just so inspiring to me. It was five weeks, four weeks, five and a half weeks. She walks in with that. Five and a half weeks before the Paralympics. Yeah. And guess which side it's on? That side. Yeah. Ouch. It hurt. And we did a lot of that, but what we really need was a surgery. And so she got a surgery to, to straighten that out. He said, how in the world do I have all this training for the last four years turn into Paralympics? And I really want to get on the, the stand again this year, get on the podium. And through a lot of training upright for a while, keeping the pressure off of here, and a lot of nasty intervals setting inside on the trainer. We got to there. She got to there. I was just able to help out a little bit. Um, And not only going through the physical challenges of that, but imagine what that just does to you mentally. Ah. So with that, fitting a bike to your needs and improving your health account, go back to the beginning, your health account will not improve your riding, but also your life. Okay, so um, I'm super grateful for Curtis, and I'm I'm up here speaking um, kind of off the top of my head tonight. I hadn't seen any of his presentation. (laughs) I prepared her well. um, (laughs) Prior to coming here. Um, So I guess a couple of things that I just wanted to touch on was, number one, the idea, the that we have of accommodating the fit to the rider. Um, obviously, I have some unique uh, fit challenges <laughs> with my funny little arm. And, um, you know, it just occurs to me that that was one of the first things that I did when I decided that I wanted to be a competitive cyclist. Um, and I was on the TIBCO development team a number of years ago. And um, I went in and I said, well, okay, if I'm going to spend 20 hours a week riding my bike, I've never had anything like that. I've just ridden my bike around for my entire life, right? If I'm going to spend 20 hours a week on my bike, do I want to ride around crooked? That doesn't seem like a very good idea to me. Um, And so I went in to see Curtis, and with the help of some other people in the bike industry, we came up with, you know, customized handholds. This is like the super pimp version of of adaptive equipment. You don't need anything necessarily this fancy. But, you know, the driving concept was how do you get my shoulders, like, level and my hips level so that I'm not crooked and, like, ruining my back for the rest of my life. Um, That was a good six years ago, I guess, almost seven years ago. Um, But I actually haven't been racing 
for all of those years because one of the very first things that happened as a competitive cyclist was that I got hit by a car. Um, and so I went in to see Curtis as a development rider on the Tibco squad um, for a basic bike fit and, hey, can you f- help me with my handlebar concept? Um, and was back in there uh, probably two and a half months later, yeah. um, trying it, in a pinch, trying to qualify for the national Paralympic team because I wasn't on the team and nationals were coming up and I had to go to worlds and I had to win a medal at worlds in order to be on the national team in order to get funding so that I could continue to be a bike racer. <laughs> um, and, um, and so with all those dominoes, you know, I just went into Curtis and I said, I can't hardly walk. How am I supposed to race in six weeks? Um, and he gave me some exercises, which I did religiously, and that was the beginning of our working relationship. And it's been sort of one crisis after another, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh. Um, but you know, with this latest one, um, right before before um, going to the Paralympic Games, I was racing at Cascade Classic with Primal Matt, my ride. And um, it was the very last day of racing before I was going to leave for London. And I just got run into a curb um, on the last stage of the race and flipped over the handlebars. I was pretty much the only rider to go down. And I was lying under a tree. And I knew that my collarbone was broken before anything else. And everybody wanted to ask me, did you hit your head? And do you know what day it is? And I just kept saying, I know all of my, I know the date. I can tell you where we are. This is the second lap of the RB circuit race. We are on the backside after the second climb. Like, I know where we are. It's my collarbone bone broken and nobody would tell me for about 12 hours until we got the x-ray back for sure but um you know and curtis can attest to the person that walked into his office uh two days later the day before surgery was not the person who went to london um and that my collarbone was broken but so was my mental game um because I said, I have overcome so many obstacles to be here. I almost didn't even qualify for the team, um, not because I wasn't strong enough, but because of all these other things that happened. And um, I, this, is, this is the last straw. Like, I'm, it's over. I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, and it, it took about, I don't know, two or three days to realize I have overcome, with Curtis's help, <laughs> I've overcome being hit by a car, I've overcome a uh, serious head injury, and all sorts of other, who knows how many injuries I've actually prevented um, by going in pretty regularly with, you know, this is, now this is hurting, maybe we should do this to my bike fit. Um, and, and I said, you know what, I've gotten, come back from all of these other things, I know how to heal my body at this point. Um, and so I did, you know, I just said, okay, I'm just going to do what I've done uh, about a dozen times, <laughs> um, since I started being a bike racer. Um, and that, that having that sort of like mental switch thrown of going, okay, no, I can do this. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do my exercises and, um, I'm going to do some things like put my bike in a trainer and ride without any weight on my handlebars for, uh, almost two weeks. I think it was seven, six or seven days after surgery, um, I was on my bike with my arm in a sling, um, and you know I'd ride as long as I could, leaning on my left arm. And then when this started to throb too badly, I said, "Okay, I'll sit up." And in some ways, I'm lucky that it was my little arm that where my collarbone broke because I could still, you know, put weight on my left arm. So um, when we headed off to London, I still was having trouble with standing starts out of the starting gate for the velodrome events. Um, But, you know, I could go out and ride on the road. And when the vibration on the road started to bother this too much, I could just take my arm out, you know, and ride with one hand for a while because all of my controls are on the left. So, you know, it was no big deal. 
Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny to be able to say that it was no, no big, big deal, deal in the yeah. end. So <laughs> good bike fitter. And, you know, part of the reason that worked is because we've been working together for so long. So, you know, having a bike fitter that you that you have a relationship with can help troubleshoot stuff a lot faster. So those are my two cents. Th- thank you to Kelly. Just amazing. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.